Yeah. This be a life, no gimmick. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Triple S Podcast for yet another episode. Uh, We got a good one for you guys today. In this one, we're going to be talking about this past week in sports. So we're going to be talking about the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. We also have some news in terms of head coaching hires and some retirement, some other stuff like that. And then we're going to get into the UFC, which had two events, one this past Wednesday and one the Saturday before that. Both of them were great cards, so we're going to talk about those as well. Let's jump right into it. So the divisional round had four games. Two were on Saturday and two were on Sunday. So on Saturday, the first game was the Green Bay Packers hosting the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, This game, to me, was probably the least exciting game. It was the game where I thought the outcome was the most um, predictable, maybe I would say. Uh, I didn't really see a way for the Rams to win this game unless they had just an absolute lights-out defensive performance, which, you know, we've seen them have before, but the Packers are one of the, if not the elite offense of the NFL. You know, you stack them against the Chiefs, and maybe there's a couple other teams you could put up there, but the Packers are an elite offense, and they put that on full display. You know, they put up 32 points, even against a great Rams defense. Final score was 32-8. to Uh, One thing I want to take note of in this game was Jalen Ramsey, man. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, He was talking about Devontae Adams. He was grilling in pregame. He said, make sure you go wherever I go. And first of all, I thought that was kind of weird. I mean, I feel like that's something that Devontae Adams should have probably said because, I mean, as, as the corner who travels, you should be the one following the receiver wherever he goes. He can't just decide to go and line up against you because he has to follow the play call. So that was a little weird. Uh, But at any rate, you know, Devontae Adams definitely had the better day. I believe he had eight or nine catches, a touchdown reception on Jalen Ramsey in man coverage. So he definitely won the day. And he also had him shifted on one release off the line of scrimmage. I saw that all over Bleacher Report. Next game on Saturday was what I thought would be the best game of the weekend. Turned out to be not so good of a game. We had the Buffalo Bills hosting the um, Baltimore Ravens. Only 20 points put up in total in this game. Final score was 17-3 for the Bills. Uh, they showed out in this game. I'll be honest with you guys. They showed out every week. I keep There's a part of me that hopes the Bills will lose. Being a Dolphins fan, you know, they're a division rival. And every week, the Bills find a way to pull it out. Uh, they do look like a scary team. And we're going to talk about them when we talk about the conference championships and how I feel about the Bills. But just know they are a scary team. Baltimore had been very hot, and they held them to three points. 104-yard pick six against Lamar Jackson. Uh, They hit him in the end zone, knocked him out of the game. Uh, So it was definitely a good performance by the Buffalo Bills. They advance. One other thing, just before we move on to the next game, the wind was a huge factor in this game. The the Baltimore Ravens have one of the best kickers of all time in Justin Tucker, and he missed, for the first time in his career, missed two kicks that were both under 40 yards. So when that kind of thing happens, like as soon as he missed the second uh, field goal under 40 yards, I knew deep down, like there's no way, there's no way Baltimore wins this game. Like this is a cursed game. As soon as Justin Tucker is missing two field goals under 50 yards in the same game, that's the first time that's ever happened. So I knew at that point, like this is a write-off. There's gonna, no matter what way it happens, Buffalo will find a way to win this game. And then, you know, the icing on the proverbial cake of Baltimore's undoing, you know, they had their backup quarterback in after Lamar got hurt. They had the slither, the smallest slither of a chance to get back in the game late. Marquise Hollywood Brown runs a double move and out and up on Tredavious White, gets him to bite. Tyler Huntley, the backup quarterback, throws it deep for Marquise Hollywood Brown. And I don't know if it was just a lack of accuracy or if it was the win, but he overthrew him. He was no one was going to touch him. If that ball was on target, he was going to walk in for a touchdown. Uh, and as soon as that happened again, I mean, like the Justin Tucker field goals was was one thing. You miss a wide open receiver on a touchdown, you know, you're you're doomed. You're there's no way you're walking out of there with a win. And congratulations to Buffalo. I mean, it's the first time they're in this conference championship in I believe it's 23 years. So their fans, you know, they're going crazy. All right, now we're going to move over to Sunday and. 
this first game was another game where I kind of saw the outcome ahead of time, kind of like the Packers game, uh, but it turned out to be a much better game than anticipated. So we had the Chiefs hosting the Cleveland Browns. Final score was 22-17, to 17, and a lot of people, Chase Claypool included, I'm looking at you, Chase, you know, thought the Browns were going to get slapped. That's the exact words that Chase Claypool used. He said, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Browns are going to get slapped next week. And they ended up only losing by five, and it came down to a fourth down conversion. And I do want to talk about that because Andy Reid, man, he's got some nuts of steel. If the Triple S podcast had a nuts of steel award, it would definitely go to Andy Reid this week. Um, First of all, Patrick Mahomes went down in this game, which kind of left the door open for Cleveland. Chad Henney did step in, you know, former Dolphin, that's my guy. He stepped in. He did have some decent throws. He moved the ball a little bit, but he did also throw one very errant interception. He threw the ball deep, way overthrown. The safety easily picked it off. So he had some ups and downs. There was reasons to doubt his ability down the stretch. Nonetheless, on fourth down and one, actually, let's rewind it one play before because that play was also crazy. It was third and very, very long. I believe it was maybe third and 16. And the Chiefs had the ball. They called a pass play, first of all, which was very surprising. I assume they would just run the ball. So that's where Andy Reid's Nuts of Steel really begins. They call a pass play. Chad Henney drops back. No one is open. He rolls to the left. No one's there. He keeps running. And keep in mind, Chad Henney is not the most athletic guy. He rolls left. He starts running. There's no one there. There's no one there. All of a sudden, he's about four or five yards away from the first down. So he's run for about 10, 11 yards. He, instead of sliding, you know, protecting his body, he goes balls to the wall. He, he dives forward, attempting to get the first down, and is marked just short. And I do think it was a good spot. A lot of people said, oh, it looked like he got it, but I, th- I think it was a good spot. So it's fourth and just under one yard. Andy Reid decides to go for it on fourth and one. Um, so... One thing to note about that, I do think that there was a chance they wouldn't have run the play, but in the huddle they or in the timeout, they may have said, if we get this certain look, we're going to run this play. It's a high percentage play. If we don't get the look we like, just, you know, try and draw them offside. We'll call a t- or take the delay of game and we'll punt them the ball. So I guess they lined up. They had the look they like. Tyreek Hill had soft coverage in the slot. As soon as the ball was snapped to Chad Henney in the shotgun, first of all, on fourth and one, not even under center, uh, ball was snapped to Chad Henney. He rolled a little bit to the right, threw the quick out to Tyreek Hill, who got about four or five yards for the first down, iced the game. And you know that was pretty crazy because they were at just about midfield. Can you imagine had the Kansas City Chiefs not gotten that first down? I believe there was just under two minutes left. They had already hit the two-minute warning. And the Browns had no timeouts left. But for the Browns to have gotten the ball down five at midfield when you could have punted it to them. And, you know, worst case, it goes out for a touchback. And they get it at the 20. They have to go the full field uh, with no timeouts. And you could have, if you missed that fourth down, you could have given it to them at midfield. So that just goes to show, you know, the nuts of steel award. We'll we'll go ahead and give it out to Andy Reid for the conference championship week. Huge win for the Kansas City Chiefs. They advanced to the AFC Championship for two years in a row now. And the last divisional playoff game. This one was a little bit of a tearjerker, I'll be honest. Uh, But right before the game started, we had reports come out uh, that this would be Drew Brees' last season. So whether they won or lost that game, whether they won the Super Bowl or whatever happened, this was Drew Brees' last season. He was going to retire after the season. Uh, so this could, this would most likely, you know, 99.999% unless he changes his mind, be the last time we ever get to see Breeze versus Brady. These guys have been battling it out for years. And once I heard that news, I was like, there's no way I'm going anywhere. I'm sitting right on the couch and I'm watching this game. Uh, unfortunately for Breeze, for, for it being his last game, it definitely was not how he would have wanted it to go. I can't imagine that that's how he envisioned his last game game in the NFL going he threw quite a few picks I think he had two or three interceptions some of them were were bad Uh, just some missed throws he didn't look like his arm strength was all there and the Saints fell at home 20 to 30 to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady Tom Brady back in a conference championship game what's new 
Well, what's new is that he's in the NFC this time and not the AFC. Somebody should probably let Gronkowski know that because in the, in the locker room when they're celebrating, he's like, yeah, we're going to the AFC championship game, baby. And his teammate, Devin White, who was recording him, had to let him know, we're in the NFC, bro. Like, What are you talking about? So I thought that was pretty funny. But, you know, back to the tearjerker side of things. Uh, once the game was over, the Buccaneers had won. It was really, really heartbreaking to watch Drew Brees run out. Uh, he, you could see him talking to Jameis Winston right on the sidelines as the time was winding down. But then as he was running to the tunnel, you know, back to the locker room, uh, he was blowing kisses up to the uh, what I assume was the booth where his wife and kids were. Um, maybe it was just to the fans. I'm not sure. But I'm assuming it was to his wife and kids. And then after that, he's running to the tunnel and he takes one last look back. You know, he's running. He turns, looks back at the stadium for a moment. And I'll be honest, man, that hit me in the feels. I, I, didn't, I didn't cry, I'll be honest with you guys. But I was on the verge, man. I was really sad to see him. You know, when you, you could tell. I wasn't sure about the reports because it didn't come directly from Breeze or his camp. But when you saw the way he reacted post-game, you could tell that that was it. But anyway, you know, mad respect to Drew Brees. He ends, you know, first or second in so many of the major passing categories for for the records. Uh, so he's definitely going to be missed. And I'm definitely appreciative that I was able to, you know, watch him play for a good part of his career, you know, growing up watching football. He was definitely always one of the best quarterbacks. And it just goes to show you, man, you got to enjoy these guys while you have them because you never know when they're going to call it quits. All right, so now that we have the divisional round out of the way, we're going to talk about the two conference championships that those four divisional games set up. So this Sunday, uh, the first game is going to be the Packers taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Rodgers hosting Brady. It'll be the first time, like we said earlier, that the uh, Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers host a NFC championship game. Which, if you think about it, that sounds kind of crazy because Aaron Rodgers has been doing it for so long. He's been so good for so long. But to host the NFC Championship game, you have to be, you know, most likely you have to be the one seed or you have to be a two seed in a year where the number one went down. Uh, so that obviously hasn't happened until now for the Green Bay Packers. So like I said, this game is going to be on this Sunday. Kickoff is at 3.05 Eastern Time. I'm really excited for this one. Just going to talk about some injuries real quick. And the most notable thing that I can talk about is that Antonio Brown has been ruled out. I'm not sure what exactly the injury is, but it was hovering around on Instagram today and in some news sources on ESPN that Antonio Brown would be out for this game with an injury. Um, also for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Antoine Winfield, their star safety, the rookie out of Minnesota. Um, he's listed as questionable, but I do believe he should play. Then on the Packers side of things, nothing too, too notable, but uh, they do have one starting cornerback, Kevin King, who is listed as questionable. Other than that, just a few guys that have been on injured reserve for some time now. So not too, too banged up for either team. You know, the loss of AB, it, it, although it is significant for the Buccaneers, he is an, an all-world talent. It's not like you're losing, you know, one of your starting linemen where you, your backup may not be as accomplished. When you have A.B. go down, you still have Mike Evans catching passes, who is, is one of the best in the league. You still have Chris Godwin catching passes, who has shown to be a reliable threat. And Scotty Miller, you know, before A.B. stepped onto the scene, Scotty Miller was making some plays as well. So I do believe they will still have a good amount of firepower for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in this game. One other thing that I want to take note of for this game, and I think it's something that's pretty important, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are not used to playing in bad weather games. Now, I took a look at their schedule just to see, you know, when's the last time they may have played, you know, in a poor weather game. And it's been pretty much all year, if I'm being honest. If we go all the way back to week 11, which is a good while ago, that's November 13th, they played at home to the Los Angeles Rams. So that was a home game they played in Tampa, good weather. Next game, week 12, they played at home against the Chiefs. Week 13, they had off. Week 14, they played at home again to Minnesota. Week 15, they played at Atlanta. They play in a dome. Week 16, they played at Detroit. 
they play in the Dome. And then week 17, they played Atlanta again, but this time at home. And so that would be in Tampa Bay. Again, good weather game. Then you fast forward to the playoffs. They played at Washington. So that might be the most recent somewhat bad weather game. But even then, it wasn't super cold or windy or snowy for that game. And then last week, they played in New Orleans, which is, again, a dome. So now you fast forward to the conference championship. Green Bay is clearly not a dome, and it's not Tampa Bay either. I think they're calling for snow. I think they're calling for wind. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be sweet for Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense. So I'm not sure how they're getting prepared for this game. But when I look back at when the Green Bay Packers, who are used to playing in poor weather, you know, their home field is in poor weather. For the most part, you know, in January and December, and hopefully for them in February. Um, when you look at the games that they've played, they've had elite performances in the snow. Look at the Tennessee game. They put on a clinic against Tennessee. When you play in cold weather, you know, whenever you're a good team who's going to be playing cold weather games in January and in December, and again, hopefully in February, it helps to have an elite run game. And when you look at the Packers, they have three guys who have shown that they're capable. A.J. Dillon, you know, he's a rookie. He's had some nice carries down the stretch. And then, of course, you have uh, Aaron Jones, who is the bona fide, you know, one of the best running backs in the game. And then you have another bruiser on your hands, which is Jamal Williams. So they have a really good running attack. And then on top of all that, Aaron Rodgers does not seem to miss a beat when the weather is poor. Neither does Devontae Adams. So, I mean, the Buccaneers defense, they had a good performance against the Saints, but they will have their hands full in the cold weather against the Green Bay Packers. Now, for my outcome prediction, last week, I correctly predicted that the New Orleans Saints were going to fall to Brady and the Bucks. I just had this weird feeling about Brady pulling off that win, you know, sending Breeze off into the sunset. But in this week, I have that same feeling, but for Aaron Rodgers. I feel like this is going to be a game where Aaron Rodgers shows out. And for that reason, I'm going to be picking the Green Bay Packers in this game. Another note on that, uh, I also think that it's going to have a lot to do with Green Bay being acclimated to the weather. I think maybe we see some drops or some slipping from some uh, Buccaneers players, especially on offense. Maybe some Aaron throws from Brady. But we'll see. You know, He does have a wealth of experience playing in cold weather, being from you know New England Patriots. All right, now we're going to swing it over to the AFC and talk about this AFC championship game. And I'm very, very excited for it. So if you guys remember when we talked about the divisional round when the Browns played the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes was knocked out of that game with a concussion. So the talk of this week was, is Mahomes going to play? Is he going to clear the concussion protocol in time to play? Some people weren't sure. I was one, I was of the people that believed that there was no way that he would miss this game. It might sound bad to say, but I, I think that he's just too valuable and that the team doctors and whatever... Even if he was maybe not 100% recovered, they were going to say that he's ready to go. Uh, there's there's powers that be in the NFL that there's no way that they go into the AFC Championship, Chad Henney against uh, Josh Allen. I just don't see a world where that would have been the case. And, you know, yesterday we got the news. Sorry, you guys are getting this on Saturday. So two days ago on Thursday, uh, we got the news that Patrick Mahomes cleared concussion protocol. He will be good to go on game day and that is super exciting because that brings the entire intrigue of this game back into play i already as you guys have heard if you've been tuning into the podcast i have this weird feeling about buffalo this year that they're going to win the super bowl and when mahomes got injured that was my first thought wow they're going to get to play the chiefs without mahomes or my other thought was oh my gosh mahomes just got knocked out chad henny's going to step in and lose the game and the Bills are going to get to host the AFC Championship against the Browns, and they will beat the Browns. Those are my two thoughts. So, I mean, obviously neither of those things happened because the Chad Henney-led Chiefs eventually won, and uh, Patrick Mahomes cleared concussion protocol. Now, I'm going to talk about this game a little bit. Uh, it's kind of weird to say, but this is the game that I've been the most excited for and maybe the most nervous for that doesn't involve the Miami Dolphins in quite some time. Uh, 
that you have two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, two of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL facing off. Mahomes, who is probably, not probably, Mahomes is the best young quarterback in the NFL. And Josh Allen, you know, definitely in terms of young, uh, up-and-coming franchise NFL quarterbacks, I would say he's got to be at least top three. Him, Mahomes, and Deshaun Watson, I think those are probably my top three guys. So to see two of those top three guys face off is going to be absolutely huge. Both teams have, you know, some solid pieces on defense. Maybe not the most elite defenses, though, but they both have really, really strong, firepowered offenses led by elite receivers. You know, for the Kansas City Chiefs, you have Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill as well. And then you go over to the Bills, you have two all pros in Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley. So this game is super exciting. My prediction for this game, I'm going to stick with my gut. I have this weird feeling that Buffalo will find a way to pull off the win. Uh, I don't know what it is about Buffalo this year, but they just give me that feeling that they have what it takes to win a Super Bowl. They, it's not always pretty. You know, the Indianapolis Colts game, it wasn't pretty. They, they let them run all over them. Then they hosted Baltimore. You know, I predicted Baltimore to win because I saw how the Colts were able to run on Buffalo and I knew that Baltimore was a good running team. They found a way to shut them down, held them to three points. You know, the weather did play a factor, but, you know, nonetheless, both teams had to play in the same weather. And Buffalo put up 17. So, well, actually, their offense put up 10. They had to pick six as well. But they find ways to win, and I believe that will be the case in Kansas City. Um, You know, Mahomes just won last year. It's very rare to win back-to-back Super Bowls. So you mix that with the way I feel about Buffalo. Uh, I just see Buffalo winning this game for some weird reason, guys. And I just want to say one more thing on a Buffalo Bills note. It's super unfortunate that the Buffalo Bills are actually a pretty likable team. Uh, you know, being a division rival, you know, you, you're trained to to hate the Patriots as a Dolphins fan and hate the Jets and hate the Bills. Oh, they all suck. But there's so many little things about the Bills that just make you like go like, it's kind of like LeBron James. LeBron James has a lot of haters, even though he's a great player, does a lot of great things in the community. I see the Bills kind of the same way. Uh, after they beat the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar was knocked out of the game, the Bills Mafia fan base raised, I believe it was close to half a million dollars. It was it was in the six figures for sure. I believe it was 460000 or some somewhere around that range for a charity that Lamar Jackson supports. They didn't have to do that. But, you know, they got, they got a, a movement going on social media. They said, hey, guys, listen, let's start donating to this charity. Support Lamar and support the charity that he supports. And they raised a bunch of money for that. On top of that... Uh, today I saw a video today being Friday uh, there was a Buffalo Bills fan who just beat cancer today he was wearing his Bills jersey and he rang the bell and everything you know heartwarming story and then he gets up on a, a little step ladder and jumps through a table that says cancer on it so you know he beat cancer and then he beat a table that said cancer on it in true Bills Mafia style so there's there's something likable about the Bills I gotta say All right, so we've talked about the two conference championship games. My predictions for those two, Packers win, Bills win. So that should set up, you know, if I'm correct, a Bills versus Packers uh, Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. It would be kind of cool if Tampa Bay beat the Packers so they would play a home, you know, a home Super Bowl game despite not playing a single home playoff game. I'm sure that would have to be the first time that that would happen. Actually, I think that no team has ever actually played at home for a Super Bowl period so to do it after not even being a home team you know like hosting or winning the division or anything that would be pretty crazy all right so now I want to move over to some head coaching hiring news so in the NFL this offseason we had seven head coaching vacancies the Jets Falcons uh, Jaguars who else the Chargers Uh, Then there was also the Eagles fired um, Doug Peterson, the Detroit Lions, and the Houston Texans all had head coaching vacancies. So of those seven vacancies, six of them have already been filled. The Jets hired Robert Sala, the former coordinator from the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, The Falcons uh, hired Arthur Smith, who used to be with the Titans. Uh, The Jaguars hired Urban Meyer, my boy from Ohio State. 
who had taken a couple years off. Uh, Brandon Staley was hired by the Chargers. We're going to talk about that one in just a bit. Um, the Eagles hired Nick Sirianni, which was kind of weird. We're going to talk about that one as well. And then the last one was Dan Campbell for the Detroit Lions, who had probably the funniest introductory press conference that I've ever seen in my entire life for a head coach. And that just leaves the Houston Texans who have yet to find a new head coach. So we've already talked about three of the new guys. We talked about Robert Sala last week, uh, Arthur Smith. We already talked about him last week. And we also talked about uh, Urban Meyer last week as well. So there's three new guys. And I'm going to start off by saying that I truly don't like any of these three head coaching hires. And we're going to go one by one and talk about why. All right, so we're going to start with Brandon Staley. So the Chargers hired him as their head coach. And the number one reason why this was a head scratcher for me was as soon as they hired him, you know, I went in and I checked on Wikipedia to see his head coaching history because I had never even heard about him. You know, usually there's guys that are talked about as hot head coaching candidates. It's not always those guys that get hired, but usually it's people that you've at least kind of heard about. But I had never heard about this guy before, so I went and I did some digging. So I hopped on Wikipedia, the good old, you know, Wikipedia, and they make it really, really clear on the right side of the page, your head coach, your coaching history. So I went and I checked it out. And I was shocked to see that he's only been in the NFL since 2017. That's four years. He's only been an NFL coach, period, for four years. And now he's a head coach. So that's not necessarily unprecedented, but it was a little bit of a head scratcher. And then I went and I looked at what those roles actually were. So in 2017 and in 2018, he was an outside linebackers coach with the Chicago Bears. So, I mean, that does look pretty good because you have a guy like Khalil Mack. He was tearing it up at that time. Uh, so that that is a good look on the resume. Then his next gig was in 2019. Uh, he was the outside linebackers coach for the Denver Broncos. So again, you know, decent look. Uh, you got Von Miller out there and you got Bradley Chubb, some good pass rushers. But one thing, though, it begs the question, is it more about the coach or, you know, those guys were already pretty good players. But anyway, so that's his second gig in the NFL. One year as the outside linebackers coach for the Denver Broncos. Then this past year, for the 2020 season, he was the defensive coordinator for the LA Rams. Now remember, you know the Rams did have a great defensive season this year, but you have to also keep in mind they do have you know probably the best football player on the planet in Aaron Donald in the middle of that defense. Then, you know, a top two or top three corner. Some people, a lot of people say top one corner uh, in Jalen Ramsey. You have some very good pass rushers outside of that as well. Some good linebackers. They, they have a very good defense. So I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he did a good job. But at the same time, he was working with very, very good talent. So that leads us to 2021. This guy has three, sorry, four seasons coaching in the NFL, period. One as a coordinator, and he gets hired as a head coach. That is, to me, insanity. You couple that with the fact that a lot of people were linking Brian Dable to be the next head coach of the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. And, you know, that made a lot more sense because he is, he's been a great coordinator this year. He's been talked about heavily as being made potentially the coordinator of the year. And then you look at his resume he started in the NFL in 2000 as a defensive assistant with the Patriots for two years, from 2000 to 2001. Uh, then he was a wide receivers coach with the Patriots for four years. So already you see that he's he's done some work on defense. He's done some work on offense. Then in 20, 2007, he moved over to the Jets as the quarterback coach. He did that for 2008 as well. Uh, 2009 to 2010, he was the quarterback's or sorry, offensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. So he's got coordinator experience for a decade, over a decade, versus a guy that they just hired who has coordinator experience for one year. That that boggles my mind. I'm not sure, maybe he said something that really caught their attention in the interview, but I I believe Brian Dable would have been a much better hire and the Brian the sorry the Staley hire was kind of a head scratcher for me. Now whenever I see a 
a coach rise up through the ranks super quickly like that. Like this is kind of unprecedented. Not not necessarily unprecedented, but it's it's very quick for a guy to move up the ranks like this. From 2015, sorry, from 2016, so that's five years ago, he was a defensive coordinator and secondaries coach at John Carroll University, never even heard of it, to five years later being the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. Whenever something like that happens, my immediate thought is he's got to have a friend in a high place. Kind of similar to how Adam Gase keeps seeming to get these jobs, uh, even after the Dolphins job where he was a colossal failure, right away, like the next day, got hired by the Jets to be a head coach. That one was another one where it was like, I feel like Adam Gase may have a friend in the right place who can put in a good word or, you know, talk to the GM who's hiring and say, hey, listen, give Adam a chance. You know, he's a good guy. He He's done good work in the past. That I kind of get those kind of vibes from this hiring for the Chargers. All right, so next up, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Eagles who hired Nick Sirianni to be their next head coach. And if you're like me, this one is very similar to the last hire where I had no idea who this guy even was, um, Nick Sirianni. I had to Google him. And again, we went right to the Wikipedia to check out his coaching history and is eerily, eerily similar to Brandon Staley in terms of lack of coordinator experience and lack of just general um, proving of being worthy of being a head coach in the NFL. So if we look at um, Nick Sirianni, um, have his Wikipedia open here, he does have a little bit of a leg up uh, as opposed to Brandon Staley. He's been in the NFL since 2009 with the Kansas City Chiefs. He was an offensive quality control coach in 2009. Then 2010, he was the assistant quarterbacks coach. Then this part is a little funky to me, but in 2011, he was relegated back down to being offensive quality control coach. 2012, he then coached receivers with the Chiefs again before leaving the team in 2013 to go to San Diego and help with the Chargers, where he again went down to be a offensive quality control coach. Then 2014 and 2015, he was a quarterbacks coach. Uh, then 2016 and 17, wide receivers coach before moving to Indianapolis from 2018 to 2020, where he was the OC, but not the full-time you know, head play caller. So this one, again, kind of weird to me. It's not like the Colts have had some booming offense. You know, they did make the playoffs this year, but you know, in years past, it's not like they were anything to write home about. They weren't, you know, a premier offense in the league. So for this offensive coordinator for the Colts to be hired, it just it it seems a little weird to me. I want to read a tweet. Uh, Emmanuel Ocho, who's a former uh, player that used to, he's an announcer now, or not an announcer, but he's an analyst now used to play for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, so he does know a little bit about the uh, organization. He tweeted this out today. He said, Nick Sirianni, a young coach with no head coaching experience and minimal recognition. I'm afraid the Eagles' new head coach may just be a puppet for management to control. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, but if the Philadelphia Eagles were looking for someone who they could control, it would definitely be a guy who's got no head coaching experience, as Emmanuel Acho said, only three years coordinator experience. And in those three years, he hasn't even been the primary play caller. Now, keep in mind, when Brandon Staley and Nick Sirianni were hired, there's two very, very good candidates that are still on the board. Brian Dable, who we talked about earlier, and Eric Bieniemy uh, from the Kansas City Chiefs. Those are two guys that it just it it boggles my mind that they have not been well, it doesn't bother my mind that they haven't been hired because both of their teams are still in. They play each other uh, this weekend. So, But I'm, I'm surprised that there's not more teams that have been holding out like the Chargers and waiting for Dayball to be eliminated or win the Super Bowl or same thing for Biennemi so they can bring them in and potentially hire them. Maybe they got impatient. I'm not sure. Maybe the teams that they're on being good was a detriment for Dayball and Biennemi. Who knows? But I mean... If I was a GM, I'd say it's worth the wait to get the right guy in, even if you have to wait maybe three or four extra weeks. So at this point, we've touched on five of the head coaching hires. We're going to get into the six. So at this point, you know, five of them have been filled. There was two vacancies in my head. You know, the Texans was open and the Lions was open. I was thinking, okay, once the playoffs is over and the Bills and Chiefs are both done, 
I mean, Bienemy could go to, let's say, the Texans. And Dable, I could see him going to the Lions, per se. And then we have one of the weirdest hire, maybe not the weirdest hire, but the weirdest press conference, which we'll talk about. Dan Campbell, who was a former interim head coach with the Miami Dolphins, most recently was with the Saints. He was hired to be the Detroit Lions' new head coach. Now, while I don't love this hire, I do like it a little bit better than the other two, just because the fact that uh, Dan Campbell does have head coaching experience. He was, as I said, the interim head coach with the Miami Dolphins. He's been in the NFL uh, as a coach since 2010, right after he retired as a player in 2009. Uh, as a coaching intern, he started out with the Dolphins in 2010. And then 2011 to 2015, he coached tight ends. Uh, and then 2015, at the end of the year, he was the interim head coach. Then he moved on to the New Orleans Saints in 2016 after the Dolphins didn't keep him on to be their head coach. Kind of wish they did back in the day, but you know it worked out. Uh, he moved to New Orleans, where from 2016 to 2020, he was the assistant head coach and he was also the tight ends coach. So, I mean, it doesn't look that glamorous. He's never been a coordinator. Uh, so he's he's been a tight ends coach or an intern for the duration of his coaching career, but being an assistant head coach to Sean Payton, who is one of the better head coaches in the NFL, that says something for me. So you mix that, being around Sean Payton for four seasons, being an interim head coach for, uh, I believe it was about four or five games, I think that he probably, out of those three that we've talked about today, I like that hire the best. Now, what I don't like was Dan Campbell's introductory speech. He was talking about, I think he meant well, he was talking about, you know, we're, we're a team that when we get knocked down, uh, you're gonna, it's going to take a couple shots, and then we're going to get up, and on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off. I was like, what? You're going to bite what? You're going to bite my kneecap off? And he keeps going. He says, yeah, and then, you're gonna, and then it's going to take two shots. You're going to knock us down, and then, but we're going to get back up, and on the way up, we're going to bite off your other kneecap. Bro, what are you talking about here? A lot of people were saying that this is why you should write your speech before you go up there. Who knows? If he wrote that, I mean, this guy's a different beast. But if he didn't write a speech, that is definitely um, all the the indication you need that you should be writing your speeches from now on. Or maybe someone else should be writing Dan Campbell's speeches from now on. So that just leaves the Houston Texans to figure out who their new head coach is going to be. And to me, it's heartbreaking that... There's two guys that I really like, you know, Brian Dable, and I also really like Eric Bieniemy. Only one of them, maybe one of them, the way this this head coaching carousel is going, I could see the Texans going with someone completely different, and both of those guys don't get a head coaching job. That would be a travesty to me. But, I mean, at, at least one of them will not get a head coaching job this year. One of them may get the Texans job, Maybe neither of them get it, but at least one of them will be out of a head coaching job, which I think is a travesty. All right, so we've talked about the NFL, we've talked about the divisional round, we've talked about the conference championship round, and we've talked about the head coaching carousel and the hires and what I think about all of that. Now I want to move over to the UFC because we have a little bit to talk about there. And we're going to go back to last Saturday, and we had a great card, a great card. It was Holloway versus Cater on Fight Island, um, and it did not disappoint. So the main card started out with three first-round KOs. So the first fight, Pinelli Soriano knocked out Dusko Todorovic. It was his first professional loss uh, for Todorovic. That was an exciting fight because I had never seen either of those guys fight. Uh, they were both undefeated. Pinelli Soriano improved to 8-0. Todorovic got his first L, but that was an exciting fight. Punelli Siriano at middleweight is an absolute beast. Uh, Todrovic looked like he may have been the more technical striker. Uh, he was piecing him up for, for a little bit. Soriano looked like he was in a bit of trouble at times, but it just took one. Like the announcers were saying that uh, if Sor like Todrovic was looking good, but he had to be careful because Soriano packs a punch. And if he touches you, you could have your lights go out. And that's exactly what happened. Soriano landed a perfect shot. And uh, it was pretty much, that was all she wrote at that point. The next fight of the main card, we had the hype beast himself, Joe Ken Buckley, who had the KO of the year, uh, that ninja kick where he had his, his first kick caught, span around, kicked a guy in the head, knocked him out. He fought against Al Alessio Di Chiricho. 
excuse me if I mispronounce that. Uh, and despite what you know, most people would have thought, you know, Joaquin Butley came in with all the hype train. Alessio Di Chiricho head kicks Joaquin Buckley while he is going in for a wild flurry and knocks him out cold. That was a crazy, crazy knockout as well. There was two minutes left in the round. So, I mean, about halfway through the round, Joaquin Buckley gets slept. So I think that's going to be a little slice of humble pie because I think, uh, I believe I've seen some stories. Uh, it's from only one guy, so it may not be true, but about Joaquin Buckley maybe not being the best human. You know, he's a great fighter, but he's maybe not the best guy uh, outside the ring and in training. So hopefully this will be you know, a little slice of humble pie for him and he comes back stronger. And then the third of the three uh, first round KOs on the main card, Santiago Ponzinibbio. He had been out of the game for, I believe it was over a year, they had said. He fought Li Jingliang. And Li Jingliang said, Bro, maybe you should have stayed away from the game because I'm going to knock you out. Ponzinibbio looked like he was starting to get a bit frustrated because he was losing the striking battle. And he went in kind of wild on an exchange. And Lee just kind of sat back, picked his, his perfect shot, and hit him with a counter strike to knock him out. Uh, that was a crazy fight as well. Then the co-main event was the Battle of the Old Heads. We had Carlos Condit against Matt Brown. Uh, this was a good fight, exciting fight. Uh, it went all the way to decision. It was a three-round fight. It was pretty tight. And Carlos Condit came away with the W. Matt Brown was very upset at the end. But, I mean, you, you know with these judges that if you don't want to be disappointed, the best way to avoid that is to submit or knock out your opponent. Don't leave it in the judges' hands. It was tight, but I, I agree with the decision. I think Carlos Condit won. Uh, the first round was pretty controversial because Matt Brown had top position for most of the round. But he was fighting uh, submission attempts from Carlos Condit for almost the whole time. Uh, Carlos Conde was on the bottom, but he had some promising looks at an arm bar and triangles and stuff like that. So I believe that maybe Matt Brown in his head had that round for him because he had top position. But the judges scored it for Conde because he was active. Uh, he wasn't taking damage and he was hunting submissions. Then the main event, my guy Max Holloway took on Calvin Cater at featherweight. Um, in the last episode, I talked about how this fight was huge for both guys when talking about title contention and the featherweight division. Max Holloway was coming off of two straight losses in title fights to Alexander Volkanovski. The second one was a little questionable, but you know, nonetheless, two straight losses. So a third loss would have been a crazy, crazy um, hit to his, you know, his mental game, I'm sure. But he came out and put on a clinic, a clinic of a performance. He set records in so many categories. I want to read them out to you guys. Now, keep in mind, this was a five-round fight, so that does help for you know being able to rack up the stats. But nonetheless, uh, he broke the record for significant strikes landed at 445. The previous record was 290. He broke the record for significant strikes attempted with 744, and the previous record was 515. He broke the record for distance strikes landed at 439. The previous record was 281. Uh, he broke the record for significant head strikes landed at 274. Previous record was 244, so he didn't quite smash that one like he did the others, but still broke the record. Significant body strikes landed. He broke the record with 117. The previous record was only 92. Significant strikes landed in a round. 144 significant strikes landed in one round. The previous record was 134. Uh, he also broke the record for total strikes landed in 447. The previous record was 361. And he broke the record for total strikes attempted 746. Previous record was 541. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. That's 8 records he set in one fight. Now it was wild because he, he landed so many crazy shots... And he landed so many strikes over five rounds. And Calvin Cater just never went away. So shout out to Calvin Cater. I mean, he had a chin of steel and just a heart of, of and a will of steel too to not, you know, ever get knocked out of that fight. The final scorecards, one judge had it with three 10-8 rounds. So it was 50 to 42. The other two judges had two 10-8 rounds. And every round won by Max Holloway. So they had 50 to 43 and 50 to 43. So over five rounds, that's pretty nuts. It was a complete domination of a performance. And one part of the fight that I thought was super, super uh, 
uh, cool was, uh, you know, there's not a lot of fans in the in the arena for these for these events. So you can hear the commentary team. You could hear the coaches very clearly. Uh, at one point, Max Holloway was so in the zone. I believe it was the fourth or fifth round that he could hear Daniel Cormier talking, and he was talking back to the commentary team. Uh, while he was looking at the commentary team and dodging shots from Calvin Cater. And he even threw a no-look punch that landed while he's walking away saying, I'm the best boxer in the UFC. So that was that was pretty nuts for me. All right, so now we're going to move ahead to Wednesday where we had fight night Chiesa versus Magny. Uh, not as many you know crazy fights to talk about on this one, but there are two, you know the co-main and the main event that I want to touch on. So in the co-main event, it was two fighters that I had never seen before. Worley Alves, he's a Brazilian fighter, was fighting Munir Lazez. And Munir Lazez is from the United Arab Emirates. So he was, you know, the crowd favorite. They were talking about him a lot more in the uh, the lead up to the fight. But it was all Worley Alves. You know, two minutes, two minutes and 30 seconds into round number one, he got a KO. And to be honest, it would have been earlier had he not taken him down briefly. Uh, but Worley Alves just it was a welterweight fight he looked so fast man I'm excited to see this guy in the future he's 15 and 4 I don't believe he was ranked but after that performance I I see them moving him up I I think that he's going to be something special to see in the future Uh, next fight was the main event Michael Chiesa versus Neil Magny another welterweight fight Uh, super excited for this one ahead of time I've seen both these guys fight in the past. And this fight was another kind of similar to Max Holloway versus um, Calvin Cater. It was another total domination. Michael Chiesa, I, I believe they gave Neil Magny one round uh, of the five when they when they did the scorecards. All the judges had 49 uh, for Chiesa. But he dominated the fight start to finish. And the difference in this fight was the ground game. Chiesa... Uh, he was probably the less gifted striker, although when they were on the feet, he was standing and trading and doing just as well as Neil Magny. And to be honest, he might have even done a little bit better. But then you mix in the fact that Chiesa is a talented, talented grappler, and you had very good takedowns in that fight. Neil Magny is not as good fighting off his back. Uh, and if he is, then he did not show it against Michael Chiesa. But Michael Chiesa was able to secure a bunch of takedowns and keep the fight on the ground for the most part, where he dominated Neil Magny and got a decisive win. All right, so that's the first two fight nights of the year in the UFC. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about the first pay-per-view event, Poirier versus McGregor 2. Now there's three fights on this card that I want to talk about pretty quickly. So the first fight is a women's fight strawweight division and it's between two Brazilian fighters, number 8 ranked contender Marina Rodriguez and number 10 ranked uh, Amanda Ribas. So this is an exciting fight. Both these fighters have an up-tempo kind of pace. You know, both women are Brazilian and they're both very good jiu-jitsu players, so they're both good on the ground. I believe that Ribas may have the slight advantage in the striking game, but we'll see how this one plays out. I'm pretty excited for this one. Next up is the co-main event. This one is super exciting. So it's Dan Hooker. Uh, this is a lightweight fight, by the way. Dan Hooker uh, against Michael Chandler, who is the newcomer in the division. He's not yet ranked. I believe Dan Hooker is ranked sixth in the lightweight division. I'm just going to check that real quick. Uh, yeah, he's ranked sixth right behind Tony Ferguson and Conor McGregor. And, you know, with Khabib's status up in the air, you know, he might come back, like you said, if someone impresses him. Uh, this is a perfect opportunity for just that to happen. There's going to be two lightweight fights on the same uh, the same evening. Back-to-back, you're going to have this fight and then the next fight we're going to talk about, which is um, Poirier versus McGregor. But this fight is exciting to me because I have never seen Chandler fight before, but I did a quick YouTube search just to see what he's all about, you know, see what he's done in, uh, I believe he came from Bellator, and holy hell, Michael Chandler can fight, man, he can bang, he is very quick, he's short, you know, agile, but he packs a punch, so I'm excited to see how he does against, uh, you know, a longer fighter, a good striker in Dan Hooker, can Dan Hooker keep Michael Chandler at distance, you know, use his length to his advantage, 
but I think that if Michael Chandler can get in close in, in boxing range, he could potentially end the fight. He is a dynamic, dynamic striker. So this is a fight between, you know, number six in the lightweight division versus who is considered to be, you know, the new the new next best thing in the lightweight division. So I think the winner of this is going to come out with a top five ranking. Uh, either way you slice it. And they're going to be looking at potentially getting a title shot or maybe a one fight and then step up to the title shot. Which brings us to the next fight, which is the main event of the evening. It's a grudge match, you know, rematch. Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor, number two. So for those of you who don't know, the first fight uh, ended very quickly. Conor McGregor knocked out Dustin Poirier inside of the first round. Uh, it was a crazy, crazy fight. Uh, he had a, it looked like a shot to kind of the back of the head, but you know it was considered legal nonetheless, and Dustin Poirier was out. This fight, both men look a little more composed. They were both super, super, you know, agitated in the first fight. They looked like they just wanted to rip each other's heads off. In this fight, Dustin Poirier looks a lot more composed. And even McGregor, who's usually, you know, if you know McGregor, he's he's a eccentric guy. He's a showman. He still kind of has that showman mentality to him when you see him in the weigh-ins and stuff like that. But he has a lot more uh, composure and respect about him this time around. Him and Dustin Poirier at the ceremonial weigh-in, they were kind of jawing back and forth. They're in their fighter poses. But then after that, they both get up and shake each other's hands. And I believe Dustin Poirier even gave Conor McGregor a little gift. It looked like a little bottle of something. I'm not quite sure what it was. But definitely looks a lot more respectable this time around. But, I mean, even though these guys appear to have a lot of respect for each other, don't get it twisted. They're going to be looking to knock each other's heads off. Out of Conor McGregor's uh, 22 wins, 19 of them are KOs, and I'm pretty sure 17 of them are first-round KOs, and the other two, I believe, are either second- or third-round KOs. And then Dustin Poirier, on the other hand, is going to be looking to avenge a loss where he got knocked out. I mean, I can't imagine, I've never been knocked out personally, but I can only imagine that if you got knocked out, it would be something that you would want to avenge for sure if you had the opportunity. So I'm sure that Dustin Poirier is going to be looking to do that. Super excited for this fight. Main card starts at 10 p.m. tonight. Do not miss this card. It is going to be absolutely nuts. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that just about wraps it up for this episode of the Triple S Podcast. I want to thank everyone for rocking with me and supporting the channel. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. If you're on a different platform, just make sure you hit that subscribe button. It helps me out a lot. And for you guys, it makes sure that you never miss any episodes or any content. Uh, in terms of what's coming up next, uh, of course, next Saturday, we're going to have another recap. We're going to talk about how the conference championships went in the NFL. Uh, we're going to see if the Texans filled that head coaching spot. And we're going to talk about how this UFC card went as well. But I also want to announce that sometime after uh, next week's episode drops, so during that next week, we're going to be having the first Triple S Podcast uh, 2021 mock draft. We're going to be doing one round. I'm super excited to get that done because I've been looking at a lot of draft prospects. So it's going to be exciting to kind of see how they fall uh, when I'm doing my mock draft. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be super exciting. There will be trades in it too, so not going to be your cookie cutter mock draft. All right, folks, so that does it. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate you guys, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Yeah. This be a life, no gimmick.